0: You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters.
1: We hope you enjoy this audio. Now hear the word of the Lord from John 8, 12 to 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I come from and where I am going Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Check, check, check. There we go. Hello. All right. My name is Jake Frieden. I've been coming to Sacred City for a while now. I cannot remember how long, but (laughs) anyway, a while. This is my lovely wife, Candace, sitting here on the second row. Two of my daughters, Caitlin and Madison, and my little boy, Aiden. Um, My other daughter, I think she must be downstairs helping in the children's thing. Um, Pastor Sam asked me to preach. I appreciate him for asking me and giving me the opportunity to speak God's word to you. Um, And that was not the hard part. He wanted me to give an introduction about myself and say a little bit about myself. Um, And all I can really tell you in a short time is I'm a sinner saved by grace. Um, I was once these little tiny boys sitting here in these pews, listening to God's word, doing whatever mom had come up with to help me to not distract everybody so (laughs) we but I love having little kids in the service it's great I was once those little one of those little kids and because of a covenantal God he saved me I about a fourth fifth generation Christian that grew up in the church and I don't really want to get into my rebellion and the type of person I was, but I was a little bit of a, little bit of a hellion. Um, but by God's grace, he saved me, he changed me, he causes me to walk in his way, and I get to proclaim the excellencies of that God this morning to you from John chapter 8. And as we move into this passage of scripture, I want to throw your minds back to John chapter 7 that Pastor Sam went over. Last week, and in context here, we are in the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, it's called sometimes. And what that is about, if you're new to church or if you've not been raised in Christianity, if you've not went through Sunday school your whole life, that you're like, so what, you know? So I just want to start as a way of introduction and give you a brief journey through the Old Testament as to how we sit here and we call this person Jesus or the Christ, or the Messiah. And there again, what does that mean? Christ, Messiah, He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer, and He is the one who bears the sin of His people. And so from the very beginning, we have God speaking light into creation. You know, let there be light. And so we have this light motif all the way through the Old Testament. And we, we, then we come up to Abraham. If you don't know Abraham, he was a descendant of Eve that was, pros- that was promised to come. He was also one that God chose out of the pagan world to be the father of many nations to there again be in the lineage of the Christ who is God incarnate, who put on flesh. And so we serve a covenantal God and what that means is he makes promises. And since he is all powerful, he keeps them and we can trust him. And so we look at Abraham's life and he promised him many nations that he'd be the father of many nations. He promised him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea. But the only problem was is he was infertile and his wife was barren. And so how can this come about? But because God is a covenantal God and he promised to Eve a seed that would crush the serpent's head, destroy the works of Satan, and save his people, Abraham believed him and cut covenant with him. And so what that means is you have a greater being that makes a promise to a lesser being. And Abraham, being that lesser created being, was the one who cut the animals in two, laid them out, and the punishment for not Keeping his side of the bargain was to bear that sin, but God being God, he put Abraham into a deep sleep, and he put a flaming torch, another light, through the middle of those animals, signifying that he would uphold Abraham's side of the covenant, because Abraham was unable to do so. And so we walked through, and Abraham was prophesied that day of how his descendants would be a nation. They would be slaves for 400 years in Egypt. God would come rescue them, bring them out. We have Moses. He comes, brings them out. We see God put a beat down on all of the Egyptian gods, and then we have this light that guides them in the wilderness at night and a pillar of cloud by day. The pillar of cloud was their rear guard as they walked through the sea and on dry ground, and then it guided them. And so now here we sit in John chapter eight, in John chapter seven, we have Jesus saying, I am the bread, which God supernaturally fed them manna in the wilderness. I am water, if you remember God striking the rock and cracking the rock and the water poured out. And then Paul says it followed them through the wilderness like a supernatural drinking fountain. And so this is, this is the Christ, he's here now in the flesh. And so we get to John chapter 8 and this is the second I am statement. And let me read this to you, it says, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. So we have a twofold thing, I'm the light of the world. And to the Jews who expected the Messiah to come, deliver them from the Romans, set up an earthly kingdom, walk with them, and give them all the earthly blessings, temporal blessings that they were expecting, he did not do that. He instead came to bear the sins of not only theirs, the remnant of the Jew, but also for the whole world. This destroyed the idea of Jewish exclusivism that it's only us, it's only this nation, it's only, but we serve a covenantal God who promised Abraham the nations. And so now the Messiah, the savior of the world has come and we're pouring out light unto the world because the world is trapped in darkness. And if you have read your Bible, you know, in Ephesians two, it talks about how the Ephesians, the Gentile, they were without hope and without God in the world. This light hadn't came to them until Paul came and brought that to them. And then you will have the light of life. How then shall we live? How now that this Messiah, this Savior, this prophet, this priest, this king has come, what is expected of us and how do we live according to his way and according to his word? And so now you have the Pharisees and they've said to him, you are testifying about yourself, your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. So in the Pharisees law, when you want to punish someone with death, and we remember in John chapter seven, that was their point. They wanted to kill the Christ. So they're, they're testing the waters on how do we trap him? How do we, how do we catch him in this? And so they are building a case and they are using their law because they wanna kill that guy. And so you're only testifying about yourself saying that you're this light. But Jesus knows who he is. And he says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. His office at this point in time was not to judge or bring the punishment upon the unbelief. His point at this time was Messiah, Savior, was prophet to prophesy to the people. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it was written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So here we see Christ, the God-man, looking at the Father and saying the father testifies about me. So I do have two witnesses that prove who I am. And the question is, where is your father? But now we have to look at the way Jesus views God's word. The scriptures that were written to the Pharisees were the words of God. And we, can, we see in Matthew, when Jesus was debating with the Sadducees and they were talking about the resurrection and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection but Jesus said have you not read what God spoke to you from the scriptures so we must take Jesus' view of the scriptures that we hold in our hand as the very words of God being spoken to us and as we sit here, 2,000 years removed from the time of Christ walking, we have the full Word of God. We have the perfect has come in the canon of Scripture. We have the revelation that we can see backwards and forwards and upside down and all around of who this Messiah was and what he's planning on accomplishing in the world. And it's an absolutely wonderful thing. And so they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And I just talked about how they had the scripture. And so one of the things about the light of the world is that light illumines several different things. One of them that it illumines the darkness of the human condition. And Jesus talked about judgment, how he wasn't there to judge, but we know he does judge. And so we can remember in John three nineteen, he says that the verdict is that men love darkness rather than light. In your natural state, as you sit here as a branch off of the root of Adam, in your natural generation, our natural position is to hate the light because of the fall that we see in the beginning in Genesis. We have, we have questioned God's word. We've said he is not true. We have wanted to rule ourselves and to decide for ourselves how we must live and how we need to operate and who our God is and all of the things that people do that we see in our culture at large and that we have seen in our own hearts. This is the darkness that men loved. But this light has come to show not only the way of salvation and who the Messiah is, but also to open your eyes so that you can see who you are and the absolute impossibility of salvation outside of this God. He was speaking in the treasury and in this story, here they are debating and they are in the treasury we are at the end of this feast of booths and the significance of the light is that in this time the jewish people their whole society and all of their holidays and all of the things that they did was a prefigure and a foreshadow of the, the messiah that was to come and so they light lights to commemorate the pillar of fire. They light lights to remember the torch that passed through Abraham's sacrifices. They have an eternal flame back in the Holy of Holies that burns as the glory of God. And in tradition, it says that they even would take the robes of the old priests and they would make wicks out of them and burn lights because they elevated their priests to a point that they were the ones that made the decisions. And spoke to the people and was supposed to draw them to God and was supposed to lead them in his way. And so you have Jesus standing here in the treasury was this, and it's called the court of the women. Also was about a 35 acre area outside of the temple and along the walls it had funnels along the walls where you dropped your coins in to pay your tithe and your offering. And it had the huge torches and it had elevated platforms where teachers would get up and they would speak and they would teach. And so now at the end of this festival that commemorated how God had separated a people from himself, had walked them through the wilderness, and had done all of these things, now Jesus stands up and says, I am the bread, I am the water, come to me if you're thirsty, and now I am the light, the one that shones, that the whole time. I'm the God who brought you through your sojourning and has brought you to this point. And the amazing thing is here we sit and they are on their second temple. God had judged them once before because of their idol worship and their unbelief. And he had spread them out all over the world. But he had brought a remnant back and they've rebuilt this temple. And now here they sit. And that is the epicenter of their culture of their life and it's a way of money it's a way of means it's a way that they are they set themselves above in the roman culture because the romans would come in and they would take a nation but they would leave their gods and so the temple was a huge (laughs) huge way of glorifying rome even because look what we've done we've we've conquered this nation now here's their temple And so this was this self-feeding system that the Jews were on the back of the Romans. If you use the analogy, the beast of Rome, you have the harlot riding its back. And so the Jews and the Romans were in league together. And we see this at the crucifixion when when they deal with Pilate. And they proclaim their God. We have no king but Caesar. Okay, this is what the Pharisees' mindset is. They're so enthralled with their position. They're so enthralled with the way they can keep law and the way they can do these things and these works bring them salvation. But now here we sit, and the Christ says, No, I am the light. Walk in me. There is no other light. Not just a light, it's the light. There's no option, there's no other Savior. And he says, "I think I've fast-forwarded my book. They were spoken the treasury. Okay, we talked about the treasury, and all of, and all of this is a way to get you guys into the story. I don't know if it's working or not, but here, yes. okay, thank you. <laughs> but I, it's just it's important because these are the words God has written to us." Okay, this is God speaking. He's telling his own story through these scriptures so that we can know. Pastor Sam, when he started this series, he talked about epistemological certainty. That's a big word. I love that word because it has this huge implication, and I'm just going to very briefly explain it to you. It is epistemology is the study of the theory of knowledge. So break it down into hillbilly terms. It's how do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? By God's word, we know what we know. And they were written to us so we would know. So we'd have this certainty. So then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. That's pretty harsh If a pastor got up here and said I'm the light of the world and where I'm going you can't come and I mean think about that But this is God He goes away Where is he going? He's going to the cross number one And then he's going to the right hand of God To take the throne of David that rules over all of creation That's where he's going the Apostles They don't get to go to that throne. Not that one. And the Jews, the Pharisees, they definitely don't get to go to that throne. And you will seek me. Okay, well, that sounds like a good thing. They'll seek him. Well, now that we are here 2,000 years later, we can see what Jesus means. They will look for a Messiah. The Jews are still looking for a Messiah, And the veil is still over their face now. And it is impossible for there to be another Messiah because their temple in AD 70, 40 years after the Ascension, was destroyed, their genealogical records were destroyed, and they can no longer track from Adam through David to the Messiah. There is no other one. They now are without hope and without God in the world. And so now they are still in bondage of law-keeping They still do not understand the grace of God. But Romans, Paul tells us, when the fullness of the Gentiles come, the veil will be removed, and the Jews nationally will seek Christ, and they will find Christ, and it'll be that one, this one, (laughs) that they crucified. And it'll it'll bless the whole world. And so, and you will die in your sins. These men right here... That are accusing them, accusing him, wanting to kill him, they will die in their sin. We know that historically. We know that because the blood of Christ is upon them and upon their children, just as they asked it to be when they crucified him. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? So they mock him. Like, what's he going to do? Commit suicide? Ironically, their rejection of him is suicide of their own. That's what we see in the world today. Your rejection of the Messiah, the rejection of Christ, the one in whom all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, and you can know nothing apart from him. You can't understand why the sun comes up every morning. You cannot account for it. Well, it just happens. How do you know it'll happen tomorrow? Well, it did yesterday. How do you know your memory's any good? You cannot have any epistemological certainty without a God who created it all, without a God who holds it all together, without a God who sustains it, and without a God who is gracious and lets you know about it. We see the Old Testament. He says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. God in his being of Trinity is completely 100% satisfied in himself and is in need of nothing. He's in need of nothing. But in his love and in his grace within himself, he had decreed that he would have a bride for his son and he would pay for them and he would then send the spirit to gather them and so within the inner trinitarian unity of the decree of god we sit here and have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and by way of introduction that's my story and that's your story if you're in christ You are from below. This is Jesus speaking again. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. So in John, the book of John, we have about 10 ways that the world, in context, what it means. Ways to define when he says the world. not going to go through all 10. We don't have that kind of time, as much as I would like to. But what, is, what, what do we see in Scripture when we talk about the world? When the Bible tells us, do not love the things of this world. Well, what is that? It's the lust of the flesh. It is the lust of the eyes. It is the pride of life. Those are the things of the world, and they are from that world. But he is not of that world. And therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, and then we have he, in the Greek there's no he, it's just the, that you believe I am. And that I am points back to the Father God that told Moses to go rescue my people, well who do I say sent me? I am who I am, Yahweh, in Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh. Unless you believe that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? He asked the question, what? (laughs) I don't know how much better I can say it. You can almost hear the frustration in Christ's voice. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? Here we sit in the book of John. Next chapter, he's about to do his sixth miracle. There are seven total in the book of John, and they are all signs of the kingdom. They are all signs of the Christ who came to establish the kingdom. And the one in chapter nine is that he makes a man that is born blind to see, and he does it on the Sabbath on purpose. <laughs> And so their blindness is coming out. Just say it to us plainly. Help us understand. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? And he says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And so we know that the Father sent him. He has claimed his ultimate authority in the first couple verses here. If I testify of myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. And now I want you to think about that. Logically, that that is what they call a fallacy. It's called circular reasoning. It'd be like saying, I'm Jake Frieden because I'm saying I'm Jake Frieden. And whenever I would get pulled over as a kid, they would say, give me your driver's license. Because they wanted a witness, you know. One time I told them I was Josh Frieden, my older brother, and they didn't ask me for my license, so I got away with it. (laughs) But they want a witness. These people want a witness. But Christ is not arguing in the flesh. He is arguing and he is setting himself up as an ultimate authority, as the foundation of how we know everything that we know. And so he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. And that also is how we argue when we are asked who the Christ is. Why do you believe this? because evidence does not change a heart. It helps, it's good, but we can see right here that we have these Pharisees who see the Christ, they see the miracles, they see all these things and they won't believe. They refuse to believe. In fact, they hate him so bad that they wanna kill him. But he has no problem claiming himself as the ultimate authority. So he says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me He has not left me alone For I always do the things that are pleasing to him As he spoke these things Many came to believe in him So here we see Christ Speaking of the way he will be glorified And his enemies Are the ones who are going to start that process of glorification They're going to lift him up on the cross They're going to Strike him in the side, and the water will come out, and when he dies, the sun itself will be blotted out. And so then they will know that he is the Christ. And he does nothing on his own. And he speaks these things that the Father has taught him. And he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him." Here we also see this complete unity in the Godhead, that Jesus and the Father are one. He came to do the Father's will. He says only what the Father tells him to say. He does only what the Father tells him to do, and he did all of those things perfectly. He upheld the covenant for Abraham. He upheld the covenant of works that Adam was supposed to uphold. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Not just a surface belief, but they believed into him. Even through this discourse of this argument, God still saves people, he still gives them true faith. And so we see through this set of scripture, Not only does he proclaim who he is, but he's also written for us a great apologetic tool that you can use when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door or the Mormons come to your door because they don't believe that Jesus is Yahweh. They believe he's only a created being. They believe that he is a brother to Lucifer. But we can see this here in John 8, that he is claiming exactly who we say he is, that he is God. He is the, with the Father. Him and the Father are one. Now I want you to turn in your Bible over to Isaiah 9. And so if you remember last week, Pastor Sam talked about the Pharisees and their argument with him in Isaiah, or in, I, in John 7. And now nothing good can come out of Galilee. And you can tell that they haven't been in their scriptures much. Because Jonah came out of Galilee, and Hosea came out of Galilee, and Nahum came out of Galilee, And now we're going to read about how God comes out of Galilee. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle Tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So out of Galilee of the Gentiles comes who? Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, to rule over the throne of David. And that's who's talking to them in John 8. That's who's speaking to us through the scriptures we read this morning. And Christians, this is good news. This is great news. Because as we stand here, miles away geographically and years away in time, a people far off from the Christ, we sit here and proclaim his greatness. We sit here and worship him for the salvation he's brought upon us. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplishes these things. This light that shined in the darkness in that day in John 8, proclaiming who he was, proclaiming that he and the Father were one, proclaiming that he wasn't judging today, but I'm going to be judging later, was with them and is still saving them. I want you guys to turn over to Ezekiel 36. This is one of those things we refer to a lot. But it's important to read it in its entirety because this goes along with the second part of the first verse, verse 12. Of those who walk in darkness have seen a great light, and they will have the light of life and so now we must define what the light of life is what is that growing up like I said I was raised in church and knew these stories all the way through but we get there's a lot of ideas in the church today that We're not under law, we're under grace. And this is true. This is very true. You are not judged by the law anymore. If you're in Christ, you have been clothed with his righteousness. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've been adopted as a son by God the Father. And so now there is no for there's therefore no longer any condemnation who's in for those who are in Christ. But the question is, how do you live today? And this was always my issue. How do I how do I be a man of God? I can read about David and I know his story, but I don't have any giants to kill like that. If we could just go fight in a battle shed some blood in my mind that was that would be easier so now how do how do i bring that into today how do i be a husband to my wife how do i be a father to my children how do i be a son to my mom and dad and so all of these questions and we're sitting here and go, well well you know there was a time i said well that's easy we just you know love god with all of our heart soul and mind absolutely But I'm thick-headed. What does that mean? I need need to understand. And not only do I need to understand, but I need to know the why. Why must I do this? Because I'm under grace. Can I do whatever I want? I have faith. I mustered it up. Doesn't God just look at me and say, whatever you do, Jake, that's cool. You're under grace, bro. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I knew it was a lie when I was a kid, and I know it's a lie now. And thank God for his spirit that brings conviction. Because you parents, as you walk through this world and you raise up your little kids, they're going to do things that you're going to be like, what? In the world is going on and moms are gonna cry and pray and dads are gonna pace and beat their fists on the table and then cry and pray and wonder why as you drive to bail your kid out of jail for the second time you know what's going on I raised him right I did the things that I was supposed to do God why what happened This is what happens when God saves someone. Let's start at verse 22 in Ezekiel 36. And this is what God does for Israel. And we have been grafted onto the true Israel of God, which is Christ. He's the seed of the woman that was to crush the serpent's head. He was the descendant of Abraham that was going to bless. Through him was all the nations going to be blessed. And we are grafted onto that root and that vine. So hear the word of God. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So now back to John 8. We see these people of Israel, these Pharisees, and we see them celebrate all of these foreshadowings of this Messiah that was coming, and we think about the mountain when Moses climbed it and God wrote the law on stone tablets which represented every individual stone heart because Romans 1 tells us that although you know God you do not worship him you do not glorify him the heavens declare the glory of God the nature itself is enough to know from natural revelation that there is a creator God And what we must do, but in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. So what must happen is divine heart surgery. Is you remove the stone one and you give a flesh one. And I will put my spirit within you. This was Moses's Moses's cry. If you remember Moses and Joshua and they were gathering the elders together and the spirit came on the elders And there was two of them that didn't make it on time that day, and they were out in the camp prophesying and doing their thing because the Spirit had fell on them. And Joshua was yelling, shut them off, you know, shut them down. And Moses turns to Joshua and says, are you jealous for me, Joshua? I wish that all of you had the Spirit. I wish that you were all prophesying. I wish that you all walked in that way. But in that time, the spirit had not come. And in John 8, it had not come yet either. That's on down through the story. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. But Jake, we're we're not under law. We're under grace, man. But Jesus says, if I love him, I obey him. Obey what? My own idea of what's righteous and holy and good? No, I must have this Christ define good and evil, righteousness, holiness, love, hate, right, wrong. I must have him define it for me. Because I sit here as a new creation, but I am simultaneously sinner and saint. And I fall every day, and I must get back up. Am I left to my own standard and my own device? Or has this Messiah who saved me given me the light of life? You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. He will save you from all your uncleanness, all of your sin, the things that separate you from God, the things that you use to suppress the truth of him. And I will not bring a famine on you, I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. And he reiterates, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places to be rebuilt will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. And that also is good news. And we see in Isaiah, the zeal of the Lord accomplishes these things. And here's the beautiful thing is he's chosen you out of the world, church. You once were just like them. You once hated him. In fact, you were born in hatred of him. That littlest baby that we have, we have a nursery full of babies, every one of them were born spiritually dead. Unable to come to God. Not only are they spiritually dead, but they are judicially dead. Because the wages of sin is death. And our first parent sinned and represented all of us in that sin. And he has passed on that sin to us. And we sin because we're sinners. But there is a great Messiah this light that has come into the world, this light that lights the path, that shows us how to walk, that shows us how to do church, that shows us how to love each other, that shows us how to operate in the world and do business, that shows us how our laws should be, that shows us what jails should look like, which there shouldn't be any. In God's economy, there is none. You make restitution. If you kill someone and it's proven by two or three witnesses that the Pharisees were wanting Christ to come up with, and he did, God wants to see you in court that day and stand before the ultimate judge. But we don't like that. We'd rather let the rapist live. We'd rather let the murderer sit in jail because that's more loving. And the issue is we don't know how to love without this word. Without this word, we don't know love. Without this word, we can't define love. It's not like the little yard signs that we see that love is love. Come on, love is love. We can do whatever we want with what we have in our pants. No problem. Love is love, bro. We're not under law, we're under grace. We're no biologists. You don't know, you can't know. They're lying to you. Because we can know. Because the light has come into the world. And now for the hard part the application. You now, we see in Romans 3, you go out and establish this law by faith. And it starts in here first with you. How do I, how do I not love God? Which ways do I fail to love God today? How are you going to know <laughs> how you failed this word? Now I start in my family. How do I love my wife? How do I raise my kids? How do I lead worship in my home? And these are things that people who have new hearts ask for themselves. And they also, they loathe themselves for the sins they committed. I like to joke about it a little bit, but it ain't funny. When I look back at what I've what I've done cuz I knew better. It's shameful the things that I did. But the good news is that God is a covenantal God. And he saved all of us when we didn't deserve it. He saved all of us when all that we could bring to the cross was a handful of sin. That was it. And why is it this way that you, that you can't work your way to salvation like the Pharisees were wanting to do? I mean, you do good things, you're great people. It's because if you could, you'd rob Christ of his glory. If it was somehow your own faith, that you brought to Jesus, you'd be able to boast in your faith. But evil men, wicked men have no faith. They have none. That must be a gracious gift that the Father gives. So that we can have epistemological certainty. There's that big word again. So that we can know. And so I can sit here and look back at my life, praise God for the means of grace that He put in my life, of great-grandparents and grandparents, and parents and aunts and uncles, all that proclaimed Jesus as Lord and raised me that way. And they had more to do for about my salvation than I did. But they don't get any glory for that either, other than rewards that they throw at Christ's feet. Because it all comes back to a covenantal God who plucked one man out of the Ur Chaldees, who was a pagan moon worshiper, and changed him. And then he continues to keep covenant to those who love him for a thousand generations. And I'm assuming that a thousand is just means a really huge number because Jesus owns the cattle on a 1,000 hills, but if he doesn't own the cattle on a thousand one hill, then we have a problem, right? So there's no end to the blessing that God brings to his people. There's no end to the adornment that he pours out on his wife. This new Jerusalem with the golden streets and the topaz walls and these beautiful gems and all these stones we hear about that you're like, man, that'd be a crazy city. Well, you're that. They destroyed the temple in three days. And Jesus raised it up again. And it specifically says that he was speaking of his body. That earthly temple was really cool. It was a great word picture. Taught a lot of lessons. I'm thankful for it because I can look back and just marvel at what God has done. But these foreshadows... Of all of those things, now that the light has been turned on and shows them to us, we fall down at our feet, fall down at our knees, and just say, God, you're too much for us. You're too wonderful for us. How is it that we get to know you? And it's because He's a covenant keeping, gracious Father that continues to keep covenant to a thousand generations. I've lost track of time. I could end it there. And I think I will. I don't know what else to say. I was gonna write the time down, but I didn't. I got too wound up. (laughs) This morning I felt like I was going to an arm wrestling match. I was getting all jacked up. But Maddie continued to tell me, Dad, don't yell too much stay on the platform Again I thank you church for listening to me. I hope it was edifying to you. I hope it gives you hope for the future. We feel like we're in the in the darkness. I mean, you see the news stories and it's crazy. What has happened that we don't know things that are obvious to us. That we reject Well, I tell you what happened. We reject the creator. We want naturalist evolutionary worldview because then we're not accountable for what we do. And we cannot have that. Here's another term that when you talk to your friends and when you evangelize, I want you to remember this, that you need to argue from the impossibility of the contrary. Okay? Impossibility of the contrary that the nature of the reality that we see around us, the way that we know things, and the only way that we can justify our ethics or our morality is by this word. And so this is our firm foundation, this is our cornerstone, this is how we view the world is through God's word. And it is impossible that these things are not true. Because if you take this and you get rid of this, you see right now in our culture what happens. They cannot justify their morality. They cannot even justify their own gender because they've stepped off of the one who assigned it to them. But you, church, are not them. There is an antithesis in history. There is an elect and there is a reprobate. And I call you to make your calling and election sure. Do not give an inch to this culture. Do not give an inch to the person that wants to act like they're talking about morality or ethics when they give you their political beliefs. And the first thing you need to say is, How do you know? How do you know? They may even say say things you agree with. And be like, how do you justify that? But then now's the gospel. I can justify it. Because my God said so. And you are born in his image. And you bear it. And when you say moral things that agree with his word, you're proving who you are. Now come to him. Confess and repent and believe the gospel. Thank you, church. Father God, we humbly come before You and God, we, we know we can do nothing good in our own strength, but because Your Son came and shined the light, we can actually know what good is. God, we thank You that He shed His blood as a payment for our sin. We thank You that He lived the perfect life that we could not live. We thank you that he is sitting on his throne right now. And God, open our eyes so that we see as when we come to church that we are in the throne room of God. And this is what, where we're at when we worship. God, as we partake of this communion that represents his body and blood, this means of grace that you've given to us, that you've given to your children, that you've given to the people that you've covenant with, God, we just thank you. We praise you that you have snatched us from the fire when we deserved hell. And it's your Holy Son's name we pray. Amen.